0: to this, the very first episode of 5 Car Garage. Now, the premise for this podcast is really simple. I ask people to pick the five cars they would have if they could only have five cars for the rest of their lives. And each week, I'm going to interview somebody different and get their take on what the ideal 5 Car Garage really is. Now, I got really lucky with the first guest for this show. Magnus Walker is, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a legend in the classic car community and um, he and I spent a really cool morning together back in January of 2020 and uh, we discussed all manner of things during the podcast and then eventually right at the end we got to his five car garage which I think is going to surprise a few people I'm really excited to see what everyone thinks about it so um, here's the podcast enjoy
1: Top of the morning to you. How are you? I'm good, awesome. very good, caffeinated and hydrated. Good. I'm glad So to we, are, we are ready to rock and roll. Awesome. Would you do me
0: the favour of telling me where we are this morning? All
1: right. This morning we're sat in my uh, downtown LA Arts District warehouse. Building's built in 1902. It's 26,000 square feet, and we're sat by the front door with my um, attention staff cat named Jet. So <laughs> that's where we are, and. Uh, Happy to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is my first
0: time here, and um, it's somewhere that's sort of been mythologized by Instagram, but I must say it's no less impressive. <laughs> uh, uh, but also coming here and being able to come here in the flesh. That's a big word. Me- I know. I-, I
1: can't even pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try.
0: I got scared as I was coming up to it. I thought maybe I was yeah.
1: gonna You know, I'm the kid that left school it. at 15, so English language words is uh, not really my specialty.
0: Well, I mean, what you may not have been able to say you've been able to do with your design dna and everything so i think uh, i think you've spoken for yourself there. well i think that's <laughs> a great
1: thing we we're talking about that earlier on about la la yes. is like the land of opportunity here as you're finding out absolutely the opportunity to do whatever you want to do is um more readily available here in la than it is in yeah. any other city i've been so far around the world i couldn't agree more and what do you think that is do you think that's the
0: mentality of the people do you think this is a you know this is gold rush of old you know people
1: yeah know. i think the you know the california 49er gold rush it never stopped you know it just goes through different cycles and anything that's sort of it's a movie town right they've been making movies here well over 100 years it's a car town literally one block south of where we're sat was a ford model t plant up until 1914 i believe yeah. it's now the warner brothers headquarters yeah. on the corner of seventh and santa fe So I think what it is about L.A. is people come here with a dream. We all have dreams. I'm a dreamer. L.A. is one of those places where dreams do come true if you put all the work in. Yes. You know, they don't hand the dreams out when you arrive at the bus station or LAX or whatever it may be. But I think what it is is whatever you're into, it's already happening here, whether it's surf, whether it's skate, whether it's automotive, whether it's film, music, art. Yeah aerospace industry when it comes to cars all the hot rodders have been building cars since the late 40s early 50s so it's a combination of the automotive aerospace industry it's pretty easy to get things fabricated there's plenty of shops that can do chrome plate and cad plate and powder coating people building motors tech centers i mean the sky's the limit here so the sun shines most of the time. We've got these access to world class driving that's roads. True. All these things that you know and have heard: ocean, desert, mountain true. in one day, and just a positive environment. You know, it doesn't really matter where you come from, what you look like in LA, because no one's really from here. Right. it's a big melting pot, and it just tends to be a more positive, unified, help everyone out, out type yeah, of yeah. Um, attitude, as opposed to, you know, every man for himself, which some other places may be. I couldn't agree more. And actually, that's that's. Led me to an interesting
0: thought, which I wasn't—I was going to save for a little bit later, but timing's everything. Exactly. I noticed you got a tasty little watch there. Oh, thank you very much. It's um, I'm, it's a it's a 7750. Yeah. That uh, looks cool. It's very nice. It was and it was built. You know, Hure built all of the watches in that, in that sort of 70s period. Right. All of the PVD chronographs. Yeah. So yours is exactly will have been, I believe, a Hure uh, movement, and and this also. So um, for me. I don't know, maybe I felt slightly fraudulent having a Porsche design one hey. until I have a Porsche. Yeah, yeah. But, um,
1: but yeah, this, this I is. I got one of each, I'm covering the bases, Lovely but piece. that one's pretty cool. Hey, but thank you very much. Back to your points.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was going to ask, how much, based upon what you said, how much of California, let's call it, do you think is in your designer, your automotive design, how much do you think that the place and your experience has rubbed
1: off on what you do? I always say you adapt to the environment, or I adapt to the environment. I spoke about LA being a melting pot. For me, I came here uh, in 1986 as a 19-year-old. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll. I was into heavy metal music. LA was the epicenter of that. But it was also the epicenter of car culture and still is. So I think a lot of my sort of aesthetic is pretty colorful. Yeah. You know, LA's, California's a colorful state, the sun shines quite a bit, you know, I'm I'm not the type of guy laying out on the beach in my Speedos, but (laughs) you know, you tend to feel more positive when the sun shines, have a brighter outlook on things, you know, for me I always describe my Porsche aesthetic as basically pulling the sort of glory years of the 60s and 70s of Porsche Motorsport DNA, Uh, throwing it into a blender, combining a little bit of American hot rod with a little bit of a British aesthetic. And what comes out of that blender is kind of what you see here. You know, I think what separates me a little bit, you know, everyone's building hot rod Porsches. There's nothing new about this. James Dean was doing it in the 50s. But I think maybe what had separated me slightly or sort of shows my style is I never really looked to emulate something that left the factory. There you go. Like a lot of people will build a Porsche and it has to be the exact replica of a 1973 RS in Martini livery or whatever livery it may be. For me, it was always like just trying to add a little bit of my own personality and mm-hmm. DNA mm-hmm. to the car. And ultimately, that is the greatest thing about these early air-cooled Porsches is they're really easy to, you know, swap and change. Go faster, stop better, cosmetically. You know, the first, like, 30 years of the 911 development are very interchangeable. Right. So it's easy to upgrade these cars. On the other hand, that kind of makes it hard to find an all-original one that hasn't been... Sort of personalised or upgraded. True, but that's what's great about the Porsche 911 platform. But for me, when it comes to Porsche, as you can see here, yeah. it's not just the 911. Yeah, no. I say if there's a Porsche badge on it, I'm all about it. If it's a sports car, to me, I'm all about variety. No two things ever do. Uh, no two cars ever drive the same way. Yeah. So to me, it's all about um, covering all the bases: front engine, mid engine, rear engine, air and water cooled. And it comes the same when it comes to sort of customizing or adding my own inter- interpretation to the car. And people always say to me, how do you determine what car gets modified? Yeah. Well, simply the car determines it. You know, I've got a lot of original numbers matching early 3-liter turbos in the garage. But yeah. other than being and on different wheels, they're not customized. You're not going to start chopping those out? No. No. So the car decides, you know, at one yeah. time, believe it or not, I had 5 67Ss, which is kind of a holy grail car. Yeah. I'm now down to two. Okay. This was back in the day, though, when these things were not big trophies and were affordable. Right. And you'd often come across a 67S that didn't have the original motor. Because they were all been blown up, right? Yeah. So, you know, it was a classic story. 20, 30 years ago when these cars were worth a couple of grand yeah. and you had a tired motor and you took it to your Porsche, uh, dealer or whatever it yeah, may be yeah, independent yeah. specialist and they'd say well it's going to cost you x amount of dollars to rebuild this original mode and it's going to take however long right. three months well i've got a 71t motor over there in the corner that i can put in tomorrow and you'll be driving it next week exactly. and it'll cost you That's a thousand no bucks
0: people didn't have the
1: foresight right so i'd acquired quite a few cars like that to me yeah. i was never one of these purists that everything had to be original and numbers matching i was more about the drive as yeah, opposed to yeah. crunching numbers So, you know, there's a motor over there that's going in a 67S that's, you know, built on a 67S case, but, Uh you know, it's not the original motor. So the car determines whether it gets modified or not. And then for me, it's a combination of determining what the end goal is with the build. I see a lot of people overbuild cars, you know. They build these whammy track cars that are really way too racy for the street, but not Mm -hmm. quite racy enough for the track. You know, and they yeah, don't really yeah. get used to the maximum potential because these guys went down the shopping list of awesome, you know, bolt-on bits and technically built a great car, yeah, but might have overbuilt it for the purpose of, you know, a weekend blast up the
0: canyon. Right, and I mean, you know, from what I know about your um, sort of how you got into, you know, uh, um, collecting and, and, you know, certainly um, modifying, it was about making your uh, whichever Porsche it was, was it two seventy seven, making yeah. that a better track car, right? right? So you let you you wanted form and function to sort of work in a way that allowed you to go faster whereas i think a lot of people now especially with the you know advent of social media and stuff they want their car to look good as much as anything right i think that's where some people get a little bit tied up in in you know you know uh, sacrificing actual performance and and you know steering feel you know for big roll fenders that you know allow for bigger wheels and you know there's there's a there's a point there where that becomes a little bit...
1: Yeah, sometimes, you know, like, there's a saying, too much is never enough, but, you know, 700 horsepower is not always usable all the time. Right. Whereas 277's a perfect example. Smaller displacement motor, anything around 200 horsepower is pretty much usable all the time. Yeah. Nine-tenths of that capacity of horsepower. So, you know, you can often go just as fast as a car with twice the horsepower if you keep your foot planted the majority of the time. Yeah. And 277's a perfect example of that car. It's a car... I'm, most associated with, it's the second Porsche I ever bought. That story's quite familiar. Yeah. I bought it in 1999 at the Pomona Swamp Meet and started doing track days with the Porsche Owners Club over the next, probably from 2002 to 2008. So that car got modified to handle better, stop better, and go around corners quicker on the track. But it was always a streetable track car. You know, it's a 71 911T, so the sum of its parts, there's nothing special about that car. It's not like it raced at Le Mans or a Daytona oh, right. or a Sebring. But I did 40, 50 track days a year at local tracks such as Laguna Seca and yeah. Willow Springs and oh. Thunder Hill and various yeah. others. And I'd literally drive that car to the track and back. I've drawn it to Laguna Seca and back a dozen times, That's race awesome. it and then bring it back. So it was never a full-blown full track car that had to be trailered. It was always streetable. And the fact yeah. that it's you know almost 50 years old, I've owned it for almost, well, over 20 years now. So it just developed over time. The sum of its parts, so there's nothing special about it. You know, it's running sort of older, antiquated suspension setups, still torsion bars. It's not on Uh coilovers. There's nothing really whammy about it. But I think a lot of people relate to that car because everyone's kind of had the car that they built. You know, it might have been the first car, the dad's car, the car they dreamed about, the car they had the poster on the wall. And it was just evolved over time, but it's become my most comfortable car in the sense of, you know, it's like my favorite pair of old shoes. I talk about that all the time. But it's a car that I... I've done a lot of miles in it and I'm super comfortable in it and that's my go-to car and yeah. we'll talk about that a little bit later on on the, on yeah, the top five. Exactly, but I exactly. I don't want to give too much away about no, it. No,
0: exactly. I had a feeling that that car would make it in there and I have a couple of questions to ask you about that.
1: But you know, each car's a bit different. You know, like that 914 that was at 10 feet away, that's my most current build. You yeah. know, I've been attending the SEMA show in Las Vegas, which for those that don't know is a specialty equipment manufacturers association. So it's basically aftermarket stuff it's everything from guys like me to ford and yeah. guys selling nuts and bolts and tires and wheels and everything in between but sema generally is a big budget bill lots of shiny cars probably 50 percent of it is off-road stuff yeah yeah so i've been showing cars there with mobile one since i think 2013 anyway this year i was doing something with hot wheels mobile one was the sponsor of this hot wheels legends tour and um this was in october and my buddy at mobile one said do you want to show a car at sema and is literally a month away I said, I don't have anything, you know, I'm one of those guys that I build for myself, it's not a business, it's a hobby, I'm traveling a lot, so sometimes I'm building, sometimes I'm not. I said, I don't really have anything, but I just bought this uh, 914 from a friend of mine, Felix Holst, and I paid next to nothing for it. And I said, I have an idea to do an art car, and I said, I think I can get it done for SEMA, and he goes, well, if you can get it done, you know, we'd love to show the car at the SEMA show in Vegas. So essentially, you know, I called up Felix, who I'd bought it from, and I'd done these little hand illustrations, because I'm not good at Illustrator or Photoshop, so I simply took a photo of the car, printed it out black and white, and got out the Sharpies, Uh, and started sketching, and I said to Felix, hey, I've got an opportunity to do the 914 for the SEMA show with Mobile One, can you help me do it? And he's an art guy, he also had worked at Hot Wheels, and so him and I literally did the car right there, took four days. And by I mean, when we did it, we sprayed it with rattle cam paint, but nothing, I had a rough sketch marked up, but yeah. nothing was like drawn up in an illustrator format. So essentially it was just taped on and we oh. made it up as we went along. So it took a little bit of time to figure out, you know, how big was the arrow going to be? Right. Where was the Union Jack going to go? It wasn't like we could go back to the laptop and manipulate it. Yeah. We'd tape on tape off. So it'd be like eighth inch, quarter inch vinyl tape and a lot of blue tape. And we basically laid it out there and made it up as we went along. Wow. But the funny part to the story is, when I bought the car, it just had the little um, yellow door with the black arrow on it. And Felix yes. had actually changed the door. And I said to him, I don't need a 914, but I love the car and I'm just buying it for the door. Then that spawned the idea of doing this art car. So if it wasn't for that, the car would never, wouldn't be here, Bloody would hell. never have gone to SEMA. But the real model to the story is we literally did do it in four days. And then t- we finished it on a Saturday night around midnight, spent four hours sort of distressing it. Because my idea was, imagine this was a race car in the 70s. that had been retired, and it was sort of left out in the desert somewhere. It had been yeah. painted a bunch of times, and then we brought it back to life and took it to SEMA. Well, we literally, I think, didn't even spend 500 bucks on materials. Ended up at SEMA. This huge show got lots of attention because it was kind of the anti-SEMA car. Right. Because, like I say, everything at SEMA is... There's a bunch of sponsored cars with all these manufacturers' items on the car and usually pretty shiny, pretty blingy and big budget, high-dollar builds that people work all year on. This was the complete opposite. Rattle Can done in four days, less than 500 bucks, but got a lot of attention at SEMA. So the moral to that story really was nothing has to be high-dollar. You just follow your heart, go with your gut feeling, do what you love. And that's a classic example of, hey, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Because it literally was a four-day build. (laughs) Admittedly, we had the opportunity to display it at Cena in a great environment. And that was a catalyst. But that also gave me a deadline, something that I'm never used to. Yeah, that's true. You know, I built for myself. Like I said, it's not a business. So it doesn't matter if it takes me six months or a year. There isn't a deadline. This, for me, was working under a deadline with no real room for error. Because once it was spray painted on, we didn't have time to take it off if we didn't like it. <laughs> no. So one sort of thing led to another, and I think you know it became an art car that's kind of unique. So Man. now the next step down the Porsche slippery slope will be—it's a base 1.7 motor, so it has no power. Uh-huh. So I'm like, no big deal. I have a 2.4s motor on a stand in the showroom. that I go. That'll bolt right oh. in, right? <laughs> so of course it'll bolt right in. Yeah, but yeah, then yeah. of course you go down the slippery slope of. It'll need an oil cooler. Operating. Then it'll need bigger brakes to stop quicker. Yeah. This is on the original four lug small brakes. So I'll have yeah. to do a five lug conversion. No big deal. But then that means changing everything, including wheels and tires. So this is the combination of the slippery slope of more performance. Obviously, you know, it takes more time, more yeah. energy, more money. And what is the end goal of the car? You know, I'd like it to go faster. Yeah. So, you know, I'm yeah. sort of in this waiting period now trying to decide when I begin Sliding down the slippery slope of making and the 914 ARC car go faster. That is,
0: that is very, very, very interesting because a question I had that I've been dying to ask you is Are any of your cars ever finished? And how do you know? And have you, there's three questions, and have you gone too far with anything? Is that something that you've been familiar with?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you always say, you know, which one's your best car, and I always go, the next one's the best, <laughs> best car. You know, I think the most performance orientated build to date that I've done is my Slate uh, Grey 1999.64, which I finished in 2015 actually, so coming up on five years ago. You know, and that is my most performance-oriented build-to-date, it's also my most modified build-to-date, and it's probably my most subtle build-to-date, because it's one colour and like a darker version of what we call Outlaw Slate Grey. So a lot of people glance at that car and walk right past it, especially when it's parked next to 277 or my GT3, which are more of these, let's call them boy racer colour schemes, the 964 is probably more of a gentleman racer colour scheme, but every single panel on that car has been modified and the goal there was to make that car better than the one before. Right. The one before was the STR, the white one with the blue stripes and the orange bumper which was a great car. That was a car I'd built in 2012, though, so eight yeah, years and ago. And
0: that one went to auction, right, eventually? Yeah, it right? went
1: to auction. The Ingrams bought it. That was a yeah. funny story. It was. A, I've only ever sold a car once at auction. Huh. The stars aligned on that car. It was in 2013. It was the 50th anniversary of the 911. Okay. It was on the cover of Road & Track. Leno had just driven it. Oh, yeah. Tiff Nadell had oh, just driven it for a version tiff. of uh, Fifth Gear. Really? So it was, it was all over. It was on the cover of Road and & Track, and I got an opportunity to put it in the Gooding Auction, but the 50th anniversary at Monterey Pebble Beach on a Saturday night, I think at 10 o'clock. So it's like, wow, the stars are lined Prime time, baby. Yeah, and the crazy thing about that was I'd sold some cars before, and I'd always put, you know, someone would say how much you want for it, and they go $10, and they go, I'll buy it straight away, and then yeah. you realize, oh, maybe I could have got $20 for it. So at the time, that was the car that sort of set a benchmark, and uh-huh. I actually haven't sold the car that I've built since then, but... The funny part to the story was no reserve. It doubled the estimate of the reserve. And um, I even wrote an article about it for Total 9 11. And the article essentially was to modify or not modify. And the moral to the story is if I'd modified the car, if I'd kept the car stock but restored it, I think it would probably have been worth about a third of what it sold for. But my final sentence on the article was, hey, I kept the original motor just in case anyone ever wants to put it back to stock. Yeah. So that was just one of those things at time. But to answer your question, really, the 964 is, is the best build I've done. Everything's straight. You know, in a sea of sort of backdates and updates to the 964 platform, my goal was to retain all the 964 DNA, big bumpers, side rocker panel. But change everything under it. There's elements of 356, there's elements of sport classic, the roof yellow bird. Oh, you know, it's got the channeled hood, which is something the channeled roof, yeah. which is something that's never been done. The Louvered Fenders, Rain Gutter Delete, Big Motor, Great Suspension. So I would say that's the most modified car that I'm the happiest with. But yes. again, the little 914, which is just a cosmetic makeover, is also something that I'm super proud of. So right. I don't think I've ever sort of overbuilt a car. I've never really gone big motor. I've always sort of kept it, I think, usable and yeah. streetable. Yeah. So for me, you know, there's other things that I want to do um, when it comes to collecting. I'm a goal oriented collector, so sometimes, you know, it's a matter of showing restraint. Like I just acquired a Gen 1 1999 Aero Kit 996, which ironically I'm going to drive to Arizona tomorrow to go to the Scottsdale Auctions. And I bought that car back in December, I picked it up a week ago, I flew in from New York, landed at the airport and half an hour later went to pick up the car and I've driven it every day since. And you know, you say to someone, yeah I just bought a 996 Gen 1 and I'm super excited about it, they look at you like, are you crazy, it's like perhaps the most unloved 911. But to me, it represents a milestone of it's Porsche's first water cooled 911. And one of my favourite cars that I have is a 04 GT3, a 996 Gen 2. But I like to start the beginning of all my collections with the first series. I had to have a 64 911. I had to have a first-year turbo. So to me, it was only natural that I had to have a Gen 1 yes. 996, Porsche's 1st vasica Vaseca-cooled, water-cooled yeah, 911. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, a uh, rambling long answer to your question yeah, is, yeah. that's a car where everyone's saying to me, I can't wait to see how you're going to modify it. Well, I don't really need to modify that car. I spoke earlier on, the car determines to me what gets modified or not back to the 67S with a 71T motor in it. Yeah. Other than changing the wheels on the 996 Gem 1 Aero Kit car, I don't think I'm going to do anything to it. Really? You know, not everything for me has to be modified. Like, you know, one of my favorite cars is parked out there is that 78 928. That ticks a lot of boxes for me. So, you know, I take these things as they come to me. Like I say, the car always determines, does it get modified? And when it comes to what I've built up to this point, I don't think I've ever overbuilt, but always the next one's going to be a little bit more, and not better, but different, or yeah. whatever my sort of priority is in that moment. I'm super proud of the Rattle Can 914 yeah, right so yeah, To right. me, it's never been about money or high dollars. You know, there's a Porsche for every budget out there. You know, that's a topic people always sort of, think they're restricted because oh you got to get an air-cooled 911 and yes these things have become expensive but yeah. they didn't used to be that way right and i think so so you said this earlier you said there's a porsche for every budget and i said i wanted to
0: bring you up on it um because that's a very interesting point to me you know i'm someone as a you know an avid you know classic car fan and porsche fan you know like you wouldn't believe i sit there and browse craigslist and ebay and you know bring a trailer daily and i've never pulled the trigger my budget you know would be i'm on that sort of sub 10 grand budget that's, right. that's where i'd be and you know i've seen 996s getting in towards that and i've got nothing against the 996
1: you just walk past one out there that 04 slate great i paid five thousand bucks
0: Five thousand yeah. bucks so with yourself you know with your collection of cars and and, and you know and whatnot you don't need to rely on a car to be reliable you don't need a car
1: to be i don't need a car to be perfect you You know you know i always talk about the porsche world is a pie and there's a slice of that pie for everybody if you're the matching numbers take your car to pebble beach concours and show everyone that this porsche that you own has got 80 miles on it Mm -hmm. there's a slice of pie for that yeah i have no interest in that particular slice you show me the guy that's got half a million miles on his porsche that's got these memorable moments these stories it's Mm -hmm. more intriguing to me yeah. You know, I see there's a GT3 coming up for sale at Scottsdale with 750 miles, and I go, yeah. car hasn't been driven. It's going to have all these issues. Lines are going to crack, and yeah, things absolutely. are going to break. And whoever buys that car with 750 miles on it, it's probably never going to drive it. But yeah, the car was built to be driven. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. We bought a car with no miles on it, and it's a, yeah, you can. Everyone's free to do whatever you want. It's like putting a piece of art on the wall, right? You don't have to drive the car, but to me, it seems a shame that you, you know. You don't drive the car. So back to the Porsche for every budget. Yeah. I used to say, like, this was, would be my standard answer. There's Porsche for every budget. The best thing you can buy for five to 10 grand is a Boxster. And I still ah. say that to this day. Okay. I think people get hung up on Porsche, they think 911. Mm. You know, to me, yeah. if there's a Porsche badge on it, it's a Porsche. Yeah. You know, that 996 came to me. A guy shoots me a little email. said, hey, I'm thinking of selling my car. I'll almost give it to you. I go, well, what is it? Mm. Tells me what it is i say how much is it he goes i'll sell it to you for five grand so first question does it run he says yes "Yes." i go what does it need he goes mechanically nothing i go seriously be honest with me does it need anything mechanically said no cosmetically it's a little rough for me, I didn't need another 996, but for five grand, it just proved a point yes. that those cars are out there. And people will say, oh, you know, that that only happens to you. Well, I'm talking about my experience, you know, and it did happen to me. Yeah. But I think if you got five to 10 grand, you can go buy a boxer or a 944 yeah. or a yeah. 920. That black like, 944 over there in the corner, I yes. bought 3,500 bucks. a so normally aspirated motor. My buddy Alex at Sharkworks knew I was looking for one because... You know, I'm all about variety. So one of my goals is front-engine, water-cooled, transaxle cars. 924, 928, 944, 968. I had to have one of each. So I was looking for one. My buddy said, hey, I've got a friend who's selling one for 3500 bucks." Next question, does it run? Yes. Next question, will it make it to LA? Yes. I didn't care, you know, how it looked. It's funny. I bought it. It's a running, driving car. Hannah says to me, how many miles are on it? People always ask me. People yeah. get hung up on miles. They go, I don't know. It's a running, driving car, and it was 3500 bucks. Right. I don't care how many yeah. miles are on it. You know, people really get hung up on that. So that's a $3,500 944 that I bought within a year. You could go out and buy a 5 to 10 grand Boxer, which would be a great entry level into the Porsche experience. You know, I have a buddy who was looking for a car, looking for a car, and he was always trying to find the perfect one. Uh-huh. Three years later, he's still without a still without a Porsche. I go, dude, you're wasting all this time. Oh, yeah what is the perfect car the perfect Porsche the perfect Porsche is the one that you have the key to that is parked in your driveway that's the perfect Porsche there is no such thing as a perfect Porsche Mm. someone's always going to find something they don't like about is it the new Taycan or whatever it is right right? people find a reason not to like anything and that holds them back it's the fear of failure of not finding the perfect car so they'd sooner go without because peer pressure of, all, someone's going to tell them what's wrong with it. The buddy's that's like, right. oh, you bought a 996 for five grand. You're going to be changing the IMS bearing. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but right? it's all part of the experience. It's all part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, the perfect Porsche is the one that you have the key to that's in your driveway. Whether you bought it for five grand or five million, it just depends on if money's no object, right? Yeah. You know, if you go to the 10 to 20 grand price range, you get a 996. My Aero oh. kit car was in the teens. Uh-huh. I bought the 944 Turbo in the teens. You step up to the next level, the 20 to 30 grand, or call it the 20 to 40 grand. This is where it opens up. You know, perhaps the best bang for the dollar today, I would say in the Porsche world, if you want a 911, is probably a Gen 1 997. Mm. You can buy those for, you know, in the 30s, all the options. a lot of cars. A lot of car for not a lot of money. You know, and then the sky's the limit from there. You know, that sort of 30 to 40 grand now gets you into air-cooled stuff. But when I started collecting it, buy air-cooled stuff for a couple of grand. I mean, that was how I ended up with so many air-cooled cars. Yeah. You yeah. know, there were, a 10, there were 10% of what they are today. It's amazing. You know, and I always bought what I personally liked, not what I thought was going to become... I've never thought about a car as an investment. What's it going to be worth? I don't look at things that way. I don't look at what's going to be trendy. You know, I spoke about all those 67Ss I had. Yeah. At one time, I had seven three-liter turbos. I'm now down to five. But that's when these cars were really, really inexpensive. Yes. Because nobody cared about them they weren't necessarily the cool thing right. to have. Porsche is going trend, you know, like everyone gets super excited about a you know, new GT three or GT3 yeah, R S. Yeah, yeah. And yes, they're awesome cars, but Porsche made a lot of them. And they're expensive, right? Oh. You know, and you know, these people that love to take them to cars and coffee, and don't get me wrong, I like coffee and I like cars oh, yeah. and I go to them. But you see a lot of GT3 RSs in paint to sample colours at Cars and Coffee and you go, these things are not unique. Right. But people are buying them for this unique experience, you know. Back to the slice of the Porsche pie. You know, there's this trend about paint to sample rare shades, unusual colors. I got a boatload of unusual color cars from the 60s and the 70s in the garage that back then weren't really a big deal, right? Right. It's so nice to see,
0: you know, to come, yeah, for example, um, the White Collection, which is based yeah, on, in, is it Arizona? Texas, uh, Te- oh, the yeah, in Houston. Um, you know, it's an amazing feat, yeah. and I admire that that was, you know, the sole purpose, ogres. right? Snow yeah, vision. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, But, you know, casting my eye now along, um, you know, all of these, um, what have we got here, 44s and, you know, uh, the the two 914s, they just complement each other so well. And I think it's so
1: lovely to see your collection. um, It's kind of nice to see we've got a front engine 968, a mid-engine 914, and then a sort of basket case punk rock 78 um, SC next to it. You know, for me, one of my favorite cars, I have a 75 turbo that's, wait for it, ice green metallic with a red tartan plaid interior. Ooh. And you go, this is a little Christmassy, yeah, right? Yeah, But yet somehow it just really, really works. It's you fantastic. know, and that car's 45 years old. Oh, unbelievable. So this current trend of paint to sample yeah, yeah, thing is nothing yeah. new.
0: It's not. But it's nice, It's yeah, it's just nice to see that, um, that, you know, all colors, all cars, all creeds can be loved by someone, right? And I think, you know, when you see... I mean, I like it when a car gets repainted and it's been so long that it becomes a part of that car's history I quite right. enjoy when you know when oh this you know it's 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 white but it used to be yeah, green yeah, yeah. you can kind of yeah, see yeah. the little flakes I, I get a kick out of that right. because to me and it, it sort of comes back to our conversation about originality and about um, you know what is an original 911 at this point because you can say that an original 911 is you know how it left the factory, and you can get completely still with German in, air in the tires. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, my friend Sam Hancock and I, in in making you know the films that we made together, we've driven some cars that are on original tires, yeah, fifty yeah. years old. Yeah, they're not and fun. You know, right? The owners are so proud of them, right. and I kind of respect that, that. That that was their you know that that, that was vision. Their, their vision. But um, but to me, you know, if if you were to sell me one of these cars today, then I would be excited. Uh, you know that it had, to, to know the lives it had lived, right. and where those changes the were. That yeah, yeah. The, you know the crack. Oh, there's a crack here, and that was because X, Y, Z. Yeah. You know, and that has nothing to do with the fact that it was your car. Just it's just the car's life that's been lived. And I think that is where the idea of the original 911 or the perfect 911 gets a little bit murky for me because I want a car that's lived a life.
1: I think that's the thread that unites all true car enthusiasts, gearheads, modeheads, whatever you want to call them, together. It's not a Porsche-centric thing, it's a car culture thing. But I'm with you on the memorable moments, the stories. You know, I had a 64 911. The guy loved to tell me how he was driving down from Connecticut to Florida, and this is like in 1972 or whatever, and he got pulled over by a cop for speeding, uh, he found a joint in the car, he had to bribe the cop 100 bucks not to. These are the stories that you can't make up. Yeah. Those cars with 750 miles on them, they don't have any of those stories. That's right. They're in a little cocoon bubble in this, you know, all, this alternate world. I love hearing the stories about getting pulled over and, yeah. you know, just weird stuff. You know, I yeah. just got a speeding ticket in the mail from France. Uh, I'm like, how do I get a speeding ticket in France? You know, and then... Yeah. I got one from uh, Italy doing the million-million, so you know what I mean, these are stories about journeys and memorable moments, you know, we're talking about, you know, the five-car garage, you know, the thing I want to do is talk about the top five drives, I've done some really interesting drives all over the world in non-fancy cars, one of them was driving across Australia last year in a Porsche Cayenne as a part of this Porsche Expedition, most of it was off-road. You know, I don't know if you've been to Australia, but once you get away from the coast and the big cities, uh-huh. there's a whole lot of nothing uh-huh. out of there. I did another super mem- superble, uh, super, memorable drive in a Porsche Cayenne down in Colombia from Bogota to Medellin. Wow. Now, so these were not, not necessarily the most spirited, high-speed drives, sure. but they all had these bonsai moments driving from Bogota to Medellin up these mountain roads, you know, passing like 10, 12 cars because they're doing 20 miles an hour. And almost having head-on collisions with trucks coming the other way that don't want to let you back in type yeah. of thing yeah. doing 40 miles an hour you know you don't yeah, have I'm to really necessarily good. be doing high speed to have a memorable drives so to me those are things like it's a Porsche story but it wasn't done in a 911 those stories evolved in a Cayenne of all things so to me <laughs> when it comes to anything it doesn't matter whether it's Porsche or whatever you're driving it's the memorable miles that make these living memories that you always go back to as to what are your top five drives? People expect, yeah. oh, doing you know, 200 miles an hour and a blah 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 was a memorable drive, but some of these other drives, doing lesser speeds in strange places, right. are equally as memorable for different reasons. I'm sure. I feel yeah. like quite often when I speak to friends
0: who've got, uh, you know, well, and it literally doesn't matter what car they have. Quite often they say one of their favourite drives is the car the, the, when they pick the car up, yeah, yeah. the drive, the drive home when maybe you're unsure if you're going to make it. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, You're noticing the little it's rattle out, that yeah. you. That you didn't get you know, familiar with the car it? yeah I think um and I think uh you know that says a lot so so during like a drive to you know as you say through Colombia was there ever a moment and I imagine the answer is no where you wanted to change the situation where you thought oh this is great but I wish I was in
1: this car no car. no it's back to adapting to the environment yeah you know I, I got another wacky story down in the Dominican Republic and it's weird I've gone down there to do something with Porsche and uh-huh. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in the Dominican yeah. Republic, but you know, it's a pretty poor country. But the, the sort of 0.1 tenth of a percent of the people that have the wealth, you know, they're not driving the base model box, so they're, they're driving the GT3 RS or the Whoa. Turbo, or whatever it is. And the roads down there are crazy, and some of the craziest driving I've ever done is in the Dominican Republic. You know, and basically it seems to be like, don't worry about what speed you can do, whatever you want, type of thing. So my goal was twofold. One was to get to 300 kilometers an hour, and I maxed out at, ironically, 277 because of the conditions of the road. And the roads down there are pretty hairball. But that became a memorable moment, driving in the Dominican Republic, maxing out at 277 kilometers on the road. And you never know what you're going to find on the roads there. Literally like three people on a moped or eight people in a car or, you know, 50 people on top of a bus. So it's kind of hairball. So... Back to adapting to the environment, yeah. and with
0: that, in those moments, do you find yourself stopping to take photographs? Do you, you know, I know that you're, you're quite prevalent on Instagram. I think you, 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 let us into your life by, you know, showing us what you're doing. I say on a daily point basis. and click.
1: You know, I carry yeah. the phone around with me everywhere. I'll show you something pretty funny. Look how many photos I have on the phone.
0: <laughs> Can I share that? Yeah. There's 199,629 photos. We'll
1: have a few more when you and I take some. <sighs> so, you know, the greatest thing is you've got a smartphone, right? I don't own a laptop. I don't own a computer. I travel around the world on this one thing. It's like a lifeline phone. So, you know, people say, who does your Instagram for I go, what do you mean, who does it? There right. is no... There, I'm like a one-man army. There's no marketing team behind me. It's yeah. me the phone. I go, look how easy it is. Point, click, post, 30 seconds done. So you know, I always say this is my life, my journey. If you want to join along, follow. Or don't follow.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, if there's any mild regret, I've done all these cool things that I'm talking about and haven't really documented them. You know, I often think we're talking all around about this perfect road things. Yes. Like I did the million mile. I've done these drives. I got a great story in Mexico where one of the guys goes, "Don't worry about speeding, but if if a cop, if you see a cop, don't stop." That was his exact words keep going and this thing actually happened to us on the road we saw three or four Porsches bomb in and I see a cop on the side looks like he's got a radar Uh so I sort of back off one of the guys comes alongside me Gives me this motion, keep going, he yeah. speeds up, I sped up and we kept going. This is a true story. <laughs> so you guys, sometimes I think it would be great if I was actually documenting these adventures sure. for some sort of content. So, you know, I point and click and put stuff up on yeah, Instagram, yeah. that's the level of where I'm at.
0: And that's Because great.
1: I don't want to have a team following me around. Yes, that's the thing. Documenting I mean, what I'm doing.
0: Right. And I mean, you know, without getting too much into the vicarity of life, like how much of that experience would have been different if you had a crew with you the answer is probably quite a lot you
1: yeah it might not have happened because right. sometimes some of these bonsai things i'm talking about we might not have done because someone might have said oh this is not the smartest thing to do exactly you know i'm one of those guys that i never ask people's opinions first of all you asked me earlier on about my cars and the california climate does it reflect in the personality of my cars and i said you know i never looked to emulate something that left the factory but i'm also one of those guys that would never post online on these threads saying, hey, what do you think? And have everyone right. give them their opinion. It's kind of like why I don't build cars for customers. People say to me all the time, hey, I'd love you know, your build whatever. Could you build me one? I always know that it would never be my car. It would be your interpretation of my car. Yeah. You know, you'd know, you love it, but you'd want to change something. And then I'm kind of building something towards your personal taste.
0: Yeah, I get that. And actually, that brings me on. I I've, I've read somewhere that you said... I don't follow trends, I set my own path, which I think is you know, very true. How do you feel about the idea that, you know, like it or not, you've kind of become a trendsetter? How does that sit with you? Truth
1: be told, back in the clothing days, 20, 25 years ago, it was sort of the same thing. You know, in the sense back then I was doing things that not everyone else was doing in the fashion rock and roll industry. So I always designed clothes that I personally liked to wear. And then they became trending popular and people sort of emulated them car thing's kind of the similar thing, just in a different medium. The common thread that connects the three things I've done in 32 years of LA's, clothing, property development, buildings, and cars, and the common thread that stitches them together is they don't have my own sort of personality woven into the fabric of what becomes yes. my identity. So to answer your question, what do I think about setting a trend, I'm just, I'm just acquiring what I like, but I do see it, it's like within 996. You know, I'm on the GT3 now for like three, four years, Uh but no one seems to know about that. But the Red Arrow kit car, just the past week, it's like, oh, now 996 prices are going to start taking off. They're already taking off. Yeah, of course they are. They've already, you know, turbos have already doubled. Look at GT3s and GT2s. You know, people just like to attach labels to things, you know, put it in a little box. That way they can sort of, you know... Attach some significance or not to it. I, I don't think about it, truth no. be told. I mean, you know, it happens with everything that I do, like the 914 guys. Oh, now the 914s right, are finally right, getting right. Lit. The people that love 914s have always loved nine. Of
0: course, Jeff's had his for, Jeff Schwartz had his yeah. for what, 30 years? Yeah, it it's maybe? no
1: different to the 924s, right. right? You know, these are all the unloved, ugly, ugly ducklings of the Porsche yeah, world yeah, because, yeah. oh, that's a VW Porsche or Porsche Audi. You know, Porsche's part of VW today. You know, there's nothing new or
0: different here, right? right? Exactly. I think that's. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm glad to know that that's, that's your outlook on it. I think, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, um, that I've always sort of wondered about. So it's good to get that take. Um, so I wanted to ask you, uh, this is a bit of a, a change in pace, but in 2020, do you think it's an easy or a hard job to be a 911 designer at Porsche?
1: I, I, I don't think it's ever been an easy job to be a 911 designer at Porsche. I've met Michael Maurer, huh? one of my greatest all-time Christmas presents. is He always sends me a Christmas card, oh. and he always does an illustration of 277. Yeah. From Michael Maurer, Porsche's wow. designer. Yeah. Here's your Christmas card, here's 277. It evolves. My buddy, Mitya Borka, who's Lamborghini's head designer, yes, I know, he used to be at Porsche. Yeah. So these guys have always had a tricky job. Media drawn... You know, in the showroom over there, he's got a, a rendering of 277 as a speedster. And I'm going to show you that because awesome. the rendering is drawn on the back of a standard hotel menu, room oh. service menu. And it's dated 2013. And he said, I really think 277 would be a great speedster. I go, I don't even like speedsters. Too much beard in the hair, yeah, wind yeah, in the beard, yeah. whatever it is. So fast forward, right? Last year, Porsche unve- unveils the new speedster, Right. Media was working on that in 2013. <laughs> you look at his interpretation of 277 with the louvered uh, rear deck lid on that drawing. Wow. It's when he was working on the Speedster. So you go, oh, now it all makes sense. The Speedster that came out June 8th, you know, last year, 2019, right? For the big 50th anniversary. Media was working on that three, six years before in 2013. And that was, I'm not saying 277 has anything to do with it, but the inspiration for his illustration of 277 yeah. was the Speedster he was working on. So, you know, the problem, or the challenge, it's not a problem, it's like the 928, right, was sort of, came out in 78 to replace the 911, which had only been in production at the time since 64. And, you know, you go, you look at the 928 today, it's one of my favorite cars, the evolution of that DNA, the center console is in every every Porsche today, not just 911. Everything from the Macan to the Cayenne to the Taycan has a similar uh, silhouette of center console. You look at the Panamera, you can kind of see the 928 in it. So the challenge, you know, everything, you know, it's fast forward. Everything's going hybrid or actually going electric. Of course, the 911 is going to become electric. You know, it's survival of the fittest, adapting to the environment. I always say, as long as you can still get oil and gasoline, we'll still be driving and tinkering with these old cars. Jay Leno is a classic example in the sense of he's still driving a steam car. It's been obsolete for over 100 years. So back to your question: yeah. Is it a challenge to be a Porsche designer at Porsche Design in the 911 today? Probably, yeah. 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 You know, I'm just my standard joke is I'm waiting for the two door Taycan. I mean, well, you know, I've driven time. that car and it's fast, and you yeah. know, maybe that's yeah. the future. So time will tell. Oh, awesome.
0: And so you said that your and this is my last question before we get onto your um, five car garage. Um, you said that your goal was to have one of everything, one of every Porsche sports car front mid and rear engines does that go up to and include the new porsche you know with the 902 will you will you have one of those will you wait until the you know the prices drop down and they're sort of a little bit scratty and unloved and what what will be your play with that
1: it's a challenge because i missed out on the whole 356 you know growing up as a kid to me i didn't know what a 356 was it's a beetle right you know the post right on the wall was the turbo it wasn't a 356 so to me I've always acquired cars at a really affordable price. Yes. People go, why don't you have a three? You know, you did a Hot Wheels 356. You don't even own one. I go, well, I don't need to own one to design a car for Hot Wheels. Mm -hmm. But for 356, I kind of miss the boat of affordability. And there's people doing great stuff out there. But you've got to spend a lot of money to make a 356 sort of drive the way I want it to drive. Otherwise, I might as well go get a Beetle, right? Right. But um, a 356 is definitely on the list. Uh, I always do say the goal is evolving to the most current range of 911. 9, I've sort of stopped at the 04 996 GT3. I did talk about a 997 Gen 1 being a lot of bang for the buck in the 30s. Yeah. The challenge for me is these old cars fall into what I call OPP, other people's Porsches. I always say you don't have to own them to experience them. That's how I've been able to get behind the wheel of like a real 911 R and 73 RS and RSR yeah. 959 and Carrera GT, holy all these things that I kind of, yeah, holy grail yeah. cars that maybe you'd love to own, but you can't afford to own, but I've experienced them. So I don't know, never say never. The collection is always evolving. I could see a 997 in the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah would I like a GT, 991 GT3 or GT2 RS? Sure, but um, they're just a lot of money. They are, aren't they? I know. And I'd sooner have like 10 cars instead of one back to variety that's the point you know for me it's like I don't, I don't want to keep talking about what cars cost but that was a six grand car that was a three grand yeah, car that was yeah, a five grand yeah. car you know here's the perfect story back to those seven turbos that I own, i'm down a fight the last one i sold was probably three four years ago and the guy that bought it said why are you selling it i said truth be told it's not my favorite i have six others and the money that you're going to pay me for this one car i'm going to buy three or four cars that i really want yeah so the three or four cars that i bought by selling one 1976 Turbo, was that 924 Carrera oh. GT, it was my 2004 GT3, it was the 944 and something else. So Bloody sold hell. one car that I didn't really drive, that wasn't my favorite, and bought four that I really wanted.
0: That's variety. That's a great bit of business. Not you know not speaking financially, but as you say, just in terms of interest. And I mean the Carrera GT is, um, I, I think very genuinely the Carrera GT is amongst my favorite Porsches. Just full stop. I think the, the whole story of it. And the, you know, the fact that it was homologated, so cool. I love what you know you've done. I mean
1: that those. evolution there. The silver one is the 1980 Stock 924 Turbo, okay. or as the turbo guys would like to call it, the 931. Uh-huh. The one next to it, it's also 1980, and that's the Al Al Holbert wide body kit that was actually Al Holbert's car. I'm Whoa. pretty sure I've met his son, who Whoa. seems to think that was the car that Al Holbert oh. used as a demo car at the facility oh. in Pennsylvania. Oh, it's in the 924 Buck. So that's also a 1989 924, and then the one next to it is one of 406 that Porsche made and called Mm -hmm. the 924 Carrera GT, not to be confused with the other Carrera GT that came like 25 years later. And that's a weird story. That's a car that I imported from Australia. I I get guys emailing me all the time, hey, I have a car I think you should own, you know, you're a Porsche collector. I go, well, what is it? I always ask, what is it? and How much and blah, blah, blah. So long story short, that was a car that had been in Japan for a long time. Guy imported it to Tokyo and I mean, from Tokyo to Australia, and I brought it from Sydney to LA, probably four or five years ago. Same thing happened with my copper brown right-hand drive 75 Turbo. Which is a beautiful car. So if you'd say to me I'd be bringing, you know, a car from around the world, I'd say you're crazy. But you know, with the internet and it's a small Porsche world, right. world speak Porsche, and these things happen. So that's the story there.
0: I love that. And like we, you know, like we said, the the idea that a car, you know, is the sum of its life and it's you know its experiences. The fact that. If that car was, you know, a California import, and um, did they ever import the, the no. carriage? No. Right, so, so, you know, let's take another car, for example, but let's say it was a California import and, you know, two owners, yeah. immaculately kept, that's where the conversation would have ended between right. you and I, but as it was, you've just spent two minutes telling me. Well,
1: let me take two more minutes. So okay. there's a Japanese sticker on the windshield, rear windshield, and there's Japanese paperwork on the car, and a Japanese sort of... Uh, manual guide in Japanese the car was always a Euro car that went to Japan I never knew what the sticker meant one day there was someone here visiting from Japan from Tokyo and they go well that's a Japanese impound sticker turned out the car being impound it was in a police yard and that's the sticker that's on the car fantastic I never knew that and then of course when I got the car it was silver most of those are red or white Mm. silver Mm -hmm. you don't really see too many so when I did the paint job and swapped the wheels and stuff like that that was blasphemy with the 924 Carrera GT guys how could you do that right, to a 924 right, right. career GT? I'm like, simple. It's my car. I can do whatever I want to Exactly. Exactly. So, awesome. Every car has a story. I love it even more. Good work. Yeah, the Japanese impound in the Tokyo oh, Police Yard sticker is, was an awesome part of the badass? story. is You go, how could that happen? But you see all these great photos yeah. of cars in Japan abandoned, right? Lamborghinis That's and all these true. Often in Japan. Oh, so cool.
0: Such a great car culture. That's the one area of... I've spent a little bit of time out there, I think I spent three or four weeks out there on a job once, but I would love to, i, I barely scratched the surface yeah, of, of, the, of the automotive scene out I before. want to go
1: back, I went oh. to Tokyo, made a little Tokyo Outlaw video. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, that yeah, was pretty cool.
0: Very cool. You want to talk about the top five? I do mate, so the premise here is I want you to pick the five cars that you would have for the rest of your life if you were never to be allowed to drive another car. There's no budget unless you want to impose one but I, I feel like that would take a little bit more maths than you and I yeah. are probably good at. Um, so yeah, what would your
1: five cars be and All right, and no, well I'll do them in probably in order okay. or not. Uh, number one will be 277, we talked about that a little bit. Yeah. People always go, you know, if there's only one car you're going to keep, what car is it? So my 1971 Porsche 911T, the car that's commonly referred to as 277, I bought it at the Pomona Swap Meet in 1999. We spoke about that earlier, how it was my streetable track car. I did all my track days in it, a little bit of club racing in it. And it's the car I'm most associated with in the sense of a lot of videos about it, magazine coverage, artwork on the wall. People seem to relate to that car, the some of its parts. It's nothing special, but we've got Hot Wheels models and Chico models and all types of cool inspirational stuff. But for me... It's gone through three, four motors. It currently has an oddball 2.8 liter twin plug motor in it. It's running my Outlaw wheels that are 15 by 7s and 8s with a 225, uh, 45 and 50 series tire all around. And it's just almost 49 years old. It's my favorite thing, literally my favorite thing. And uh, that is number one on the top five for many, many reasons. Memorable moments, uh, all the track days I've done with it, the people I've met with it the places that car has gone, uh, the opportunities that that car has brought me. Believe it or not, I forget about this story, but back in 2013, I was in an ad for the new Porsche Macan when it came out, and yeah. I was the outlaw, and ah. Porsche had me in that ad with 277. Oh, cool. So, you know, a little piece of history there about the car. But ultimately, it's just a car I love to drive. I'm super comfortable in it. Yeah. It's fast enough to Have fun with other cars, it should be way faster. I can still take it to the track if I want to, and if I don't, I can have probably 80% of the same fun on my favorite road Angeles Crest Highway. So that's kind of one of those cars that ticks a lot of boxes. So that would be number one. Understandably. Number two is another Porsche, and the top five list for me is not all Porsches, but number two Uh is my silver 1976 930 Turbo. You know, my story, I'm the kid. People know the story, maybe, maybe not. But poster on the wall, that poster was a turbo. The silver one is the first turbo I ever owned. And ironically, it turned out it was documented by the factory to be the first production Porsche turbo sold in the USA. Holy shit. It's the fifth one built. Apparently, VIN number 11, 12, 13, and 14 were press demonstrator show cars. Number 11 survived. Number 12 survived. Number 14, I think, got stolen from road and track or Motor Trend's office. <laughs> no. You know, back then, I guess, Porsche's were, you know, chop shop, yeah. stolen, parted yeah. out. So that is car number 15. Porsche starts the VIN numbers at number 11. So wow. it's not that they build them in order, wow. but it's the fifth VIN number. But more importantly, it's the documented first one wow. that was sold in the U.S. Lifelong California car delivered to Bob Smith Porsche in Hollywood. I'm the fourth owner. My buddy Marty worked on it for the three previous owners. Wow. It's never really been restored. It's been, you know, tweaked over time. Yeah. It's, you know, it's been, paint's been touched up. But it just has a lot of character. And for me, that's one of those cars that, by today's standards, it's not, a, it's not really that fast. You know, lots of turbo lag, lots of tall yeah, gears. Yeah, yeah. You know, people think these early turbos are fast cars. But, you know, in one sense they are, but they don't really accelerate quick. you got to wait, and then the boost comes on. Yeah. So it's a, it's, an ex, it's a challenge to drive them and get the most out of them to constantly be on boost. The tall gear ratio is kind of a thing that you have to get used to. Like, first is good for at least 40, 45. Second gear is good for probably 85, 90. Third is 120, and fourth is the rest. So in any other car, it's like you're driving around town. You're never out of second gear in that car. A lot of times you're in first gear. Like, if you happen to be in second gear and you come to a, you know, right-hand or left-hand sort of 90-degree turn at 20 miles an hour, you have to shift down to first gear because if you don't and you roll off in second, you're going nowhere. A Prius will blow you up. Uh, So you've got to readjust your mind because any other car in that situation, you're in second gear, you uh, blip the throttle, put the clutch, and give it a bit of revs, keep it in second gear. Turbo, you've got to downshift to first, so it's counterintuitive. You know, you could be on the freeway, you know, let's say you're cruising at whatever, 70 in fourth gear, and you go... I know there's no acceleration in fourth gear. There might be a bit in third. Should I downshift to second at 65 miles an hour? This is way counterintuitive. Yeah. But those are the kind of things you've got to wrap your head around to drive an early four-speed turbo fast in and out of traffic. So not necessarily the most fun, fa- or not necessarily the fastest car in the canyons. But you want to drive to San Francisco, great GT touring car. So the second car out of the five for that reason will be the 76 930 Turbo. Awesome. Third car on the list. Is going to maybe surprise a few people. Uh, Ferrari F40. Wow. Okay. I had the privilege to drive one in Miami a couple of years ago. It's oh, yeah. a great story. I did happen to be with Larry Chan, who was uh, doing a little feature for Speed Hunters. Through yeah. a friend of a friend, I managed to blag my way into an F40 Ferrari. And long story short, ended up getting pulled over by a cop for one too many runs. It was infamous, let's just go for one more last run before That's we're done last one out of I ten understand. i guess we'd already gained some attention on uh-huh. key biscayne down in miami ripping no. over this bridge so we came over it one last time and there was the car oh. waving us <laughs> over and we pulled over and the story sort of went downhill from there because i had no paperwork on the car the car didn't you know it was owned by a car dealer so i had a dealer plate <sighs> oh, on nice. it no paperwork on it suspicious circumstances yeah, yeah. you're on an out-of-state license out of state no connection to the car uh-huh. was looking a little dodgy for about 15 20 minutes yeah. in the end the owner somehow we managed to get the owner over there somehow oh, sweet talked us out of the situation we got away with no ticket and a memorable story but beyond that i used to own a 308 gtb a 79 carburetor one this was back in the 90s and i kind of really liked that car yeah the F forty is like that car on steroids. But what I love about the F forty is it's super raw. But having owned a three hundred eight GTB, when you get in it, wasn't really that different. It was stripped out, but everything was sort of where you remembered it being. There wasn't. It's not like, for example, I've driven a Pagani wire, and there's just switches and knobs, Yeah. And yeah. just super confusing. The F forty was nothing you didn't need. And it was relatively easy to drive, unlike let's say driving wow. a Carrera GT, right. where you had to constantly be thinking about it. The F40, believe it or not, was pretty easy to drive, but once you got on boost, it was just intoxicating. And you just wanted to keep driving wow. it, hence one more yeah, run and yeah, yeah. shifting through the gears. So yeah. F40 is on the list wow. just because it's such an awesome, iconic That's car. Awesome. What do you think, um, what, what's the ideal
0: drive in an F40?
1: Well, probably for us from here to an- up Angeles Crest Highway in the canyons, you know, that's where yeah, that car yeah, really yeah, excels. Yeah. Stretch its legs. I mean, it's just in- really intoxicating. I've driven a lot of cars, like Carrera GT is an awesome car, but you're constantly feeling slightly nervy in that car. The F40, I never really felt uncomfortable in it. If you have those two side-by-side, Carrera GT, F40, both icons, different era, but both iconic, really exciting cars to drive, the F40 is a lot easier car to drive. So F40 next one. Um, 1955 Mercedes Gullwing. Oh. Hannah and I were fortunate enough to do two rallies, one in 2017, one in 2018, with Mercedes in the Gullwing, and uh, we did Millia Millia last year in oh, the Gullwing. Wow. So uh, the Mercedes itself, the Gullwing, just first of all, it's a really really pretty car to look at. And it's a pretty car, it's an easy car to drive. People say, what's it like to drive? I go, well, have you ever driven an E-Type Jack? Because I used to own a Series 1, 67 oh, type Jack. I go, it drives just like that, but doesn't stop as good. You know, it's got the, you know, okay. tall gears, talking yeah. motor. It's just tons of drama, but it's, you know, we literally did Milli Milli, which is... You know, you're in the car for a minimum 12, 14 hours it's, minimum. It's a
0: testing, testing couple of yeah, days. Yeah, I mean,
1: you're not necessarily driving fast, but it's stressful and it's yeah. hairball and you're doing some hairball moves into oncoming traffic yeah. in someone else's $2 million car and you're comfortable with it. That's You've got to get into that mindset with a million, million. Wow. You know, there's a couple of ways to do it, but we got in the mindset of that's how we were going to... We weren't going to worry about the result, but yeah. we were going to go have fun. And I have to say doing it in the gullwing was just really enjoyable, memorable ticked all the bases created memorable moments was fast you know it's kind of awkward in the sense of you know they get swirly pretty easily they don't stop great
0: yeah
1: uh but there's just something whenever i see one i'm like oh if only they weren't so much money i'd have one right right yeah yeah so gullwing bucket list car for sure okay number five i thought about number five for quite a bit because. I do want a car, if it's for the rest of my life, that is somewhat practical. Yes. When people come to visit. The right. challenge with everything I just described, it's two seats. <sighs> you've got two seats. So, you know, I thought about the van outside because, yeah. you know, you've got to go to Home Depot sometimes and uh-huh, pick stuff uh-huh. up. But, you know, a cargo van is not good for relatives from out of town. Yeah, know, off-road as well. Yeah.
0: Land Rover, I, you that.
1: I, I thought about that. Yeah. I thought about the Porsche Cayenne I've yeah. done a lot of memorable stuff yeah. in that. But that's modern, you know, everything is kind of vintage, what I'm really, really into. So this is what I came up with, Mark II Jag. I've always been a Jag fan, I used to own an XJ6, I did this great drive with Hannah last year to celebrate the uh, XJ series. It was the 50th anniversary where we drove from Coventry to the Paris Auto Show and drove all eight generations of the XJ6. No way. But that's not actually the car I'm picking. I'm picking the Mark II yeah, Jag. Yeah, yeah. So a Mark II Jag, like the one Ian Callan did, that was kind of hot rodded a little so bit on cool. the wire wheels, yeah, yeah. that to me is like, obviously being English, i got a thing for English cars. Right. It's a classic shape. It's an iconic car. You can get four people in it. So the fifth one will be a Mark wow. II Jag on the list for, you know, when you want to cruise in a bit more style with more than, you know your baby by your side. In a, in so I think a, that's the top five there, 277, 76 Turbo, F40, 55 Mercedes Gullwing, and uh, a Mark II Jack.
0: What a fantastic list. That's <laughs> my
1: garage for the rest of my life. I love that. Plus OPC, other people's cars, no doubt, but true, that's true. a whole other podcast. No,
0: yeah, there's, yeah, there's no rules on other people's uh, cars. You can drive as many of those as you like. All right, I've got a couple of questions that require very short answers to finish off. I think I know the answer to this one. Okay. What road would your five-car garage sit at the bottom of?
1: Pretty easy. Highway Two, commonly known as Angeles Crest Highway. Easy.
0: Done. Yeah. Um, okay. And so, if I was going to cast you away, like you're on a desert island with these with these five cars, what would be your one automotive luxury item? If you were allowed to take one thing with you, that can be a full set of Only tools one. well it can be like a set of tools it can be you know if you're obsessed with cleaning them which I imagine you're not yeah, you no know, I mean wax kit or what do you think what would you have
1: battery charger battery charger that's a good and, one and uh, tire pressure gauge yeah, air pump yeah
0: yeah just general maintenance stuff just essentially so you can go out and drive them
1: yeah I mean you know once you've done all the maintenance if you've got a dead battery not really going anywhere or if you've got nowhere air in your tires you're not rolling right that's ever ever the practical man Magnus kind um, of got to be